Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This year on Memorial Day, we will honor the sacrifices made and view them through a very special veteran's eyes. Diane Carlson Evans is an author, an activist, and a former nurse in the United States Army during the Vietnam War. And she's the founder of the Vietnam Women's Memorial, which is located right next to the iconic Vietnam War Memorial Wall on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Diane, welcome to Ion Veterans. It's an honor, Phil. So good to have you. And uh, we're first going to look at your experience and talk a little bit about your life through an incredible book, Healing Wounds, And as I was flipping through it, you don't have to get into it more than like a page deep before you really capture the true significance, not only of what Memorial Day is all about, but kind of how you saw it firsthand. You wrote, in Vietnam, I had become numb. I felt little fear of rocket and mortar attacks or the ominous vibration of helicopters bringing in another load of casualties. I had no fear of knowing what to do when yet another young soldier with chest injuries needed a ventilator. There, I had overcome my worst fears. And that sentence really resonated with me. And uh, share with me a little bit about your time in Vietnam, where you were stationed, what you did, and just kind of biographical look at your life. And it's always hard to do that in five minutes or less, Phil, as you know. So I'll try to (laughs) digest it into a few sentences. But I wanted to go to Vietnam when I was studying nursing in Minneapolis and I had two older brothers who were already in the service, one drafted, one in the 101st Airborne, and I felt it was my duty as well. And my 4-H buddies all around me were getting drafted because we they were farm kids and not going to college so they didn't get deferments. So I made up my mind I wanted to go to Vietnam as a nurse. And I landed 
uh, the 1st of August, 1968, in the heat of the war. And uh, my first assignment as a medical surgical nurse, that was my specialty, was in an evac hospital close to the South China Sea, uh, 36 evac hospital. And I spent six months there. And, of course, my first week <laughs> was one of sheer, um, uh, you know, I'm in a war zone now. And coming in by chopper, landing in that LZ landing zone, seeing chopper pad, seeing that Red Cross, and my first day on duty. First day on duty was walking into a Quonset hut that had 66 beds, and every bed was full. And these are all wounded guys who had come in for their DPCs, delayed primary closure, because they'd been wounded, and they all had the the probability, possibility of an infection. So we debrided those wounds for three days, loaded them on antibiotics, started their IVs, gave them their narcotics, and sent them to the operating room, and then got them back from the operating room. We rehabilitated many of them to go back to the field. That was, that was the point, you know, get these guys back to their units. Or if they got the million-dollar wound, they got sent on the AIRVAC chain back home. I was transferred over to the Burr unit in December of 1968. And we all know, or those who have watched movies about Vietnam, the younger generation, and for the Vietnam veterans listening to this, I, you know, I have you all in my heart. <laughs> I've never forgotten you. My story is a reminder of what we did together uh, in Vietnam and and after, but the, that napalm and white phosphorus that rained from the skies as our pilots dropped bombs, um, that's warfare, and, um, but sometimes it was dropped on innocent villagers and children, and that night, over 50 uh, kids had been burned, and our medics and our, chopper, our brave chopper pilots and those incredible medics got those kids to us so that we could try to save them. And so I spent quite a bit of time in that burn unit, and um, I saw firsthand how war affects the innocent civilians, and then you come home with that and have to deal not only with the pain and anguish of our fellow soldiers and their, their losses, and, but also those of innocent civilians. From there, I, I wanted to go north. So I went to the chief nurse and I said, well, I've been here six months. I understand that we can choose a transfer. I want to go north. You know, I want to be closer to where the fighting is and be careful what you ask for. Pleiku was a few kilometers from the Cambodian border. It was in the Central Highlands and it was in the jungle, it, it was higher elevation, so the temperature was colder, cooler, which was refreshing, uh, not, not to be in such high heat every day. And I arrived like the first part of February, and maybe the temperature was cooler, but the war was hotter, and we were getting a lot of mass casualties. As I talk about in my book, and what that was like, 
to not have enough resources to face all these casualties. We needed more medics. We needed more nurses. We needed more surgeons. We needed more of everything. We needed more ventilators. But, you know, you just measure up and, and you do what you have to do with what you have. And you just work a little harder and a little longer because our motto in the Army Nurse Corps was it was to preserve the fighting strength. They came first no matter what. So when those choppers uh, came in, we knew by the sound of one helicopter, a Huey, bringing in a dust-off, which was the code name, that's the air ambulance, a dust-off, Vietnam vets. <laughs> veterans know what a dust-off is, but the younger generation does not. But those dust-offs with those brave pilots came in and brought the wounded to us, and we, we found the time, we made the time to sort the wounded and, you know, triage and making decisions, life and death decisions, which was our job, of who we would send to the operating room first for surgery. So, you know, it was all about our, our level of skill, which we, the skills that we developed came so quickly because when you have that many patients and that many IVs to start, after a couple of weeks, you're already good at what you need to do to help save that soldier's life. And when I said I was numb, Phil, the numbness came from shutting down emotionally because it was tragic to see the kinds of things we did on our young men. We got good at what we did, but we shut down emotionally so that we could do our jobs. Mm. And it, what good would it do to go off to the, our hooches and, and, you know, just spend our day crying? We didn't have time to cry. So we just went to the next, the next, the next. But we showed our compassion and our empathy, and the guys knew we were there for them. It's interesting how the guys thought when they came to our hospitals that they were safe because there were American nurses there, and they just felt safe when they were with a combat nurse, a male or a female nurse. And there was that sort of sense of security, but yet, like at Pleiku, for example, our hospitals were also rocketed and mortared. We weren't safe even in our hospital. There were no safe places in Vietnam. And when the mass casualties came in, sometimes our hospital was rocketed at the same time we were getting in mass casualties. And we learned the sounds of incoming. We knew what the outgoing sounds, uh, you know, Artillery Hill was not too far away from our hospital, and we could hear them lobbing the, the outgoing artillery. And then, you know, the sounds of the thuds and the shrapnel flying around and... Mm. Um, we got used to it, but, you know, it's, it's hard to explain it, but it was like a, a, just another day. And, you know, we'd grab our helmet, we'd grab our flak jackets, and our number one priority was to take care of those patients first before we took care of ourselves. And I never understood till years later the gratitude that they felt for us. And we'll be back with more Memorial Day tributes from Vietnam veteran, beloved Army nurse, author and activist Diane Carlson Evans when CBS Eye on Veterans returns.
Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, as we reflect on Memorial Day this year, we're listening to Army nurse veteran Diane Carlson Evans, who understands the true meaning of war after serving as a combat nurse in Vietnam. We'll pick back up at the part of the interview where she reflects on some powerful moments she experienced after the war and how she battled Congress and eventually forced them to create the Women's Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Did you ever have a moment where after the war you had stayed in touch with somebody or somebody reached out and found you and it literally thanked you for saving their life? Or were, were there any follow-up moments like that? The first follow-up moment came, Phil, when in 1982 when I learned that there would be a dedication of the wall honoring or remembering those who died and I knew that there was one nurse's name on the wall, and her name was Sharon Lane, and she was killed in June of 69 while I was serving at Play Coup. And when I learned that there would be this memorial, I told my husband that I was going, And but I told him I'm going alone. I went to Vietnam alone. I came home alone. I need to do this alone. But I went out to the mailbox. <laughs> to get the mail in River Falls, Wisconsin, and was standing out on the street, and my neighbor chatted, was chatting with me, a gentleman about my age, and um, we were just chatting and um, asked what was going on and anything, and I said, well, I've decided I'm going to go out to D.C. for the dedication of the Vietnam Memorial, and he said, well, was your husband in Vietnam? And I said, no, I was. And he looked at me and he said, I was there too, and I'm going out for the dedication. I'm going too. And I said, oh, well, where were you? And he said, well, I was with the 4th Infantry Division and was wounded and went to play coup. And I said to him, I was there. What month were you wounded? And he said, March. And I said, March was a terrible month. I said, that's when our mass casualties came in in huge numbers. And he looked at me and he said, were you Lieutenant Carlson? You have red hair. And he, he recognized me and he said, you were my nurse. <laughs> and I almost fell apart because he was the first patient that I had connected with, that I had cared for in Vietnam. And wow. then he said, a group of us are going out to the wall. We're, t we're taking a van. You'd be welcome to travel with us so you don't have to fly out there. So I traveled in this van with all of these vets who we weren't talking. We were not talking about Vietnam. We weren't sharing anything. It was the quietest van ride for how many hours out to D.C. from Wisconsin. But the first thing, one of the first things that happened, Phil, that was a turning point for me was I, I got to Sharon Lane's I was looking for Sharon Lane's name, and I was looking for Eddie Lee Evanson's name, a patient I remembered. And I had on my boonie cap from Vietnam. And this I was right next to the wall, about to touch the name. And this veteran, who was wearing a field jacket and combat boots, and he tapped me on my shoulder and he said, excuse me, but were you a nurse in Vietnam? And I said, I looked up at him, and I was pretty nervous anyway about even being there, and I was shaken emotionally and anxious and mm -hmm. fearful. And 
And I said, yes. And he just took me in his arms and started to sob. He was sobbing and took me in his arms. And he said, I've waited 14 years to thank a nurse. He said, thank you. You saved my life. And, you know, I probably wasn't his nurse, but I was the representative of his nurse. And he was just so unabashedly crying and grateful and thankful. And and then we parted ways, and I didn't get his name, just like I didn't remember the names of all of those wounded soldiers I cared for in Vietnam. But at that moment, he was mine. Just like at the moments, those moments in Vietnam, those were my patients, those were my guys. I was responsible for them, and they never left me. Their wounds, their faces never left me, but I had no names except for Eddie's, and then I found his name on the wall. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, Phil, but that was a real turning point for me because it forced me, it absolutely forced me to remember when I was trying so hard to forget. I wanted to forget that war. I wanted to forget the pain and the agony. I wanted to forget that the nation betrayed us. Yeah. As veterans, when we came home, there was no gratitude, there was no recognition, there was outright hostility, we were shamed, we weren't allowed to feel proud of our service, proud of our uniform, proud of what we had done, and it all started to dissolve at that moment. Mm. Again, something miraculous about the power of the human spirit and that how sharing together really is a unique kind of medicine that is, you know, we can't even create it. It is just God's design uh, that that is the spirit that helps us move forward. And I'm glad to see that the GWAT generation, the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans are coming together more often through various ways to, you know, have that cathartic experience where they can heal together because it is the togetherness that really stitches it all back together. Um, your book goes on to talk so much more about other aspects of it. Like you'd mentioned there coming back, uh, you'd said that that was really, you feared that worse than the mortar attacks. Um, and I'll leave that for the book to describe because you do an incredible job in the book, healing wounds of talking about what it's like to be a returning service member during the Vietnam era. Another thing you talk about is how you were actually able to found and create and push a, uh, lazy, almost arduous uh, Congress to, to to do something to honor the women serving in Vietnam. And that part of the story I know is just absolutely incredible. Share with me a little bit about what it was like, what it took to get the National Women's Vietnam Memorial created. Well, as you can probably gather by just what I've just said, is that I felt this, I, I, was, I was so proud of the men and women I had served with. I will tell you that we talk about the greatest generation and how strong that generation was. And But there is greatness in every generation and undeniably in ours. My patients, I know, those men I cared for were every bit as, every bit as brave uh, as our previous generations of veterans. I, they, I saw how they suffered. I saw how they died. I saw how they cared more about the buddy next to them than about themselves. Oh, take care of him. His wounds are worse. Take care of him. You know, thinking of others first rather than themselves. The selflessness. And I had seen that in the women. I was so proud of the women I had served with. And for me, mainly it was nurses. But there were those women serving all around the world during the time 
who also stepped up to serve. And I was proud of all of them. And when I learned there'd be a statue honoring uh, the men who survived the war, and they'd be looking at their buddies' names on the wall because of the controversy, there was the addition of something which, which some of the men believed was more heroic and wanted a um, visible portrayal of how men looked in Vietnam. And then it occurred to me, it didn't take much thinking that <laughs> if we're going to see men uh, in a statue, we need a counterpoint. We need to complete the Vietnam Memorial by also having the women portrayed. Because if 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 the men belonged there at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the women belonged there as well, because we went to Vietnam for them. We went to care for them to bring them home. So this was also our place. And so it seemed to me like a very simple idea. And I came home to my husband, and he still remembers this. And I said, honey, if there's going to be a visible portrayal of men, we need a visible, we need a statue to honor women so the women can also feel that that's their place and come there to heal and connect. Like you just said so perfectly, Phil, you just nailed it, what you said about the bond and the triumph of the human spirit and how we come together. And and that's something that our nation can be so proud of as Americans and as service, the servicemen and women who have served for centuries in this nation and how we have bonded and come together and that's where our strength is. So women haven't haven't been honored and remembered like we do the men. And so I said to Mike, I said, honey, uh, there has to be a statue to women. And he said, well, who's going to do that? And I just looked at him and I said, honey, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try. So there was the seed. And then one thing, as I describe in the book, it's a lengthy procedure. But I guess I'll ask the question that's that's answer a question that's asked of me all the time and is how could you stand doing it for 10 years it took forever and you were pushed back and there was animosity and there was you know all these forces that came out of the woodwork to throw obstacles in our path because women didn't deserve this why should women be honored Um, they don't they don't deserve this and I thought to myself oh yes they do I I know how much they deserve this, and I'm going to fight to the end. And I think what got me through it, Phil, is I would look back on Vietnam, and I thought, if I can do what I did in Vietnam, I can do this. Because if I make a mistake or if I fail, nobody's going to die. In Vietnam, my biggest fear was that someone would die on my watch and it would be my fault because we were all they had and it all depended on how brave we were how smart we were how strong we were how observant we were to every little detail in that soldier's um you know recovery and if we didn't notice something he he could die and it would be our fault well as i (laughs) navigated this treacherous path to dc to get people to agree that women deserved uh, recognition and honor like we do for our men equally. Not We didn't want anything bigger or anything better. We just right. wanted a beautiful sculpture to bring us together and say, this is who we are. This is what we look like. And um, 
these women are deserving of recognition for their contribution, all of the above. Every time I got pushed back at a federal agency where there was another negative vote, no, not to, we can't have a site, we can't have on and on, I didn't give up because when I look back on Vietnam, I never, ever gave up on a patient. Mm. I never once thought, oh, I just want to go home. I can't deal with this anymore. And I thought, this is a lot like Vietnam. I'm not giving up. And I didn't. Did I want to? Yes, many times. There were days. I had four children at home under the age of 10 when I started this effort. They needed me at home. They needed mom. And my mother, a retired nurse, came to care for the children whenever I had to be gone. She said, Diane, my contribution will be I'll come and take care of the kids when you need to be fundraising, giving speeches, whatever. And then there was my husband. When I said, honey, I can't do this anymore. And he said, don't give up now. All these women are depending on this. You can't give up now. But he'd been a surgeon for seven years in the Army, taking, operating on these wounded vets coming back from Vietnam. He worked with nurses. He saw Vietnam veterans suffer and go through all these complicated surgeries. He was firsthand in that. So he could see how important this was to honor the women. So I had support at home, and and no one does anything alone. Uh, my, you know, my, the book Healing Wounds. One of the most gratifying things for me in that book was for me to be able to say thank you to all the people who came out of the woodwork now to help instead of hinder. And thousands of those people were the wounded vets, those combat vets, the wounded vets who knew that the hospitals were filled with nurses to help their buddies to heal and get back to the unit and to get home alive. They came out of the woodwork and started writing letters to Congress and writing letters to the editor saying, how dare you oppose honoring these women? If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be alive to write this letter. So what you talked about, Phil, when you talked about that bond, that unique bond, that strength, that you know, we care about each other, so we will do anything for each other. We will give our life for each other. They circled the wagons around us women, and then all the good guys came out of the woodwork. Mm. I could hear you talk about this era and this achievement for hours. Uh, absolutely love it, Diane. Thank you so much. Again, the book is Healing Wounds, a Vietnam War Combat Nurse's 10-Year Fight to Win Women a Place of Honor in Washington, D.C. And, of course, we're speaking about this book, Healing Wounds, because of your tremendous service in Vietnam. Really, the significance that you hold very near and dear to your heart that is Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we just thank you for everything that you've done. And of course, you're going to be honored. Your story will be shared and it will be interpreted for all to see on the National Memorial Day concert. And that is, again, Memorial Day weekend. That's Sunday and it'll air on PBS. But uh, Diane, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, not only am I a veteran that appreciates your service and everything that you saw and have done, but I'm the son of a nurse from Minnesota. You've been an absolute pleasure to be my guest. It's been an honor, Phil. Thank you so much.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.